Abel Raish, uh, the host, and I have a very special guest uh, from the United States. Before I introduce him, um, just a reminder, everyone, you can subscribe to the podcast uh, on all podcast platforms. Um, we're actually streaming this live via the Voice of Charity right now. Um, and so if you're on voc.org.au, listening on the website, you can also download the VOC app on any smartphone and tune in. in those in Sydney, 17.01 a.m., so welcome. And, of course, our Cradio listeners as well. Welcome to everybody on Cradio. Um, I also want to just remind people the books uh, have arrived, that the brand-new book that I launched a few weeks ago, How Islam Led Me Back to Christ, is on the website now at perusiamedia.com, and I'm excited that it's it, we had a, a very blessed launch. Uh, over 150 people came, and I invite you to have a closer look at that, and we'll talk about that uh, on another show. But my guest today... I'll read this straight off his website, and it's uh, Dr. Peter Kreeft. He's um, he's got a PhD. He's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He loves five grandchildren, his five grandchildren, his four children. He's got a wife, and he even loves his cat and the one God. Um, he's got a bit of humour. Um, he's also written over 95 books, uh, some of the popular ones, A Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Christianity for Modern Pagans, Fundamentals of the Faith. And Dr. P- Peter Kreeft joins me uh, right now. Um, good evening for you, Dr. Peter Kreeft. Good evening to you. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you very much for joining. And um, we've sort of been in touch uh, very lightly over the last five years um, on and off. And um, I've been following your work for probably 19, 20 years now uh, since I came back to my faith in a big way. And, and, and I, I have to say, I don't know if anyone has written as many books as you that's still active out there now in, in teaching um, on the faith uh, as substantial as yours. And it, it's been such a um, refreshing um, uh, experience for me and such a privilege to have you on and, and to speak to the man, the author behind all those books I got to read over the last 20 years. So thank you for joining us. It's probably an obscene number of books. Someone once said to me, I'll bet you have written more books than you've read. I didn't know whether that was an insult or a compliment. <laughs> I'd like, uh, it being the first time on this show, on our on our podcast, and, and there still may be people not familiar with you um, in the church, uh, I'd like to just get to know you. you you've, you've had a long career, and um, you, you're not a cradle Catholic yourself, Um could we start sort of at the beginning a little bit about what got you into um, the church, your, your faith, a bit of your upbringing there? Okay. I was born and brought up as a Calvinist. That's in the Reformed tradition, uh, an evangelical Protestant. Went to Calvin College, discovered things Catholic there, uh, began to fall in love with them, thought this was a temptation. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more beautiful and true and good they seemed. Uh, so I think the turning point was a course that I took in church history. The uh, professor uh, said in the first lecture that the difference between uh, the Protestant notion of church history and the Catholic notion is that uh, uh, Catholics think that Protestants are the new kids on the block, So he warned us, someday you're going to meet a Catholic, and they're going to say, are you a Christian? You say, yes. And you say, what kind? And you say, "Uh, well, I'm a Calvinist. And they're going to say, oh, well, you're in the wrong church. You're in the church that John Calvin founded 500 years ago. We're in the church that Jesus Christ founded 2,000 years ago. How do you answer that? 
and nobody had an answer. So uh, he drew two pictures on the board. One was a picture of an acorn growing into an oak tree, and the other was a picture of Noah's Ark with some barnacles uh, clinging to the bottom of it. And uh, he said uh, the Catholic theory of the church is uh, that Jesus founded the Catholic church in its rudimentary form, and it gradually grew into this enormous big business that we see today. Uh, and the Protestant theory is that uh, it's just the opposite. Uh, the Catholics are the new kids in the block. Jesus founded a Protestant church, but it gradually got all these barnacles on it, all these uh, alien growths from outside, from from Greek rationalism and Roman legalism. So finally, Luther and Calvin were like sailors that said, hey, we've got to go overboard and scrape these barnacles off or the ship will sink. So I remember saying to myself, that's what I want to believe, because I don't really want to become a Catholic, uh, but I've, I've, I've got to have reason for it. So I raised my hand and said, Professor, do you mean that if my Catholic friend and I both took a time machine and went back to the first century and worshipped together, that uh, I as a Protestant would feel more at home than he as a Catholic? And the professor said, that's a very strange way of putting it, but yes, that's what I mean. So I said to myself, good, all I have to do is read the early church fathers and find how Protestant they were to assure me that I'm in the right church. Well, you know the rest of the story. Yes. Um, how many, can I ask, how, how, what year are we talking about here? Or what, how far back are we going? 1959. Wow. Praise God. Graduated from Calvin College then. I think that was back in the Jurassic age. Weren't there dinosaurs <laughs> roaming around then? <laughs> So you were, you were, yeah, you you lived right through, um, yeah, an interesting time in the church as coming in in the sixties and seventies. Um, uh, all, all times are interesting times. There's a famous Chinese curse that says, "May you live in interesting times." <laughs> so true. How, how was it in the early years as a Catholic? Um, how did you know? How did you get into this work of being a professor in in as a Catholic? Um, what were you do? Did you sort of? Get, dive into um, theology, philosophy, um, sort of in Catholic colleges, or how did that work out for you in your career? Well, I first dived into it at Calvin College. Uh, I compared Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica with Calvin's Institute, and I said, this is the difference between a molehill and a mountain. And I discovered that uh, the Catholic Church didn't teach many of the heresies that, as a Protestant, I was taught that it taught. Uh, for instance, uh, if, if there's one point that an evangelical will insist on, it's uh, salvation by grace, uh, not by good works. Uh, so I read Thomas Aquinas' treatise on grace in the Summa, and it asked uh, 12 questions, all of them in the form of, can we do this without grace? Can we do that without grace? Can we ask for grace without grace? And the answer to every one of them is no. And I said, my goodness, Thomas Aquinas says the same thing Calvin says. Uh, he's not a thinly baptized pagan at all. And then the thing that really uh, threw me for a loop was the Eucharist. Not a single Christian doubted the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist uh, until one isolated heretic in the 11th century, Beringer of Tours, who eventually repented. Uh, and not until the Reformers did you have a... a, a the radical idea that this is only symbolic and it's idolatrous to worship it. I said, how could the Holy Spirit have fallen asleep for 1,500 years and let the whole church commit the most ridiculous idolatry of confusing bread and wine with the body and blood of God incarnate? Good question. 
very good question. And, and so many, I mean, so many, um, I imagine, um, of your friends at the time would have, yeah, would have um, seen this but not um, put the two and two together. What, what was that like for you as you as you are sharing these truths? Um, uh, well, it was it was certainly not comfortable. I lost a lot of friends. Uh, I shocked my family. Uh, it took years for that reconciliation to happen, but eventually it did, and it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Thank God you uh, you, you did what you did, and God has a plan, and and, and we're we're going to unveil a little bit more of the work you've been doing ever since. But um, were you um, married at the time, or did you marry um, after that? Oh, that's a story, too. Uh, when I was baptized into the Catholic Church at Yale University in 1960, uh, the only Catholic I knew was the girlfriend of my college friend, so I asked her to be my godmother. Uh, at the time, I was thinking seriously of becoming a priest, so there was no romance between us, but she had a great sense of humor, and during the baptism, she joked to the priest, Hey, Father, what if I fall in love with this guy? And the priest said, oh, you can't marry your God's uh, son. That's spiritual incest. you got to get a special dispensation from the Pope. A year later, we came to the priest and said, could you get us that dispensation? So I married my godmother. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How good is that? And, and, and you have four children together. Uh-huh. Actually six, two miscarriages. So two are in heaven and four on earth. Yes. We asked God for six. He said, I'll take care of two of them. Here's the other four for you. <laughs> well, no, wow, wow. Um, and um, so, when I guess, uh, as when did you get your first, um, your first, I guess, job, uh, so to speak, in as a professor in the Catholic context? Uh, what did you do um, first up? My first job teaching was teaching four sections of logic at Villanova. Uh, to students who would fall asleep in class because it was a, a a great athletic school, but not that great academically. Uh, I always respected the Jesuits, and uh, Boston College had a position uh, three years later, and I applied and got that, and I've been happy there ever since. I always wanted to move to Boston uh, for a variety of reasons. It's a beautiful city, a historic city, kind of European city. Uh, I was a great fan of the Boston Red Sox baseball team from uh, the time I popped out of my mother's womb, I think, uh, even though we lived near Yankee Stadium and my wife was a Yankee fan. So we had to have a, uh, if not a religious conversion, at least a sports conversion in order to have a happy marriage. So she's a Red Sox fan, too. Uh, and uh, BC was delightful. It's still delightful. Uh, it's uh in terms of student life and student faith, certainly not terribly Catholic. Students say BC stands for barely Catholic, but it's Catholic enough to feel like home. And there are some excellent uh, professors and some excellent students there. So it's it's a combination of, of pagan enough to be a mission field and Catholic enough to feel like home. Tell us about the... So, um... As an author, you're, what what so what do we have as your first book? What was the first book you wrote? If you can remember, ninety five books ago. Well, there's a story behind that too. Love to uh, hear it. My friend at Calvin College, who was a year ahead of me, went to work for Erdman's Publishing Company, and I got a phone call. Uh, this 
was very early in the in 1960s. I didn't even have my PhD yet. And he said, how would you like to write a book for us? I said, wonderful. We had studied uh, in the same classes, philosophy and English, and we're, we're both pretty bright. Uh, and he said, well, we're running a, a, a series of contemporary authors in Christian perspective, and we want a series of introductory books about 50 or 60 pages long. Uh, who is your favorite author? I said, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings. He said, fine, write an introduction to Tolkien. So I started, and a few days later, I got another phone call from this friend saying, this is very embarrassing, Peter. I know we haven't given you a contract yet, but could you shift from Tolkien to somebody else? I said, why? And he said, well, because W.H. Auden, who is probably the greatest poet in the world, has offered to write a book for us on Tolkien, his friend. And you're not quite as famous as he is yet, so uh, could you pick another author? And I said, well, the only other author I admire as much as Tolkien is C.S. Lewis, but I've only read a few books of him, and I know he's written about 50 books, so it would take me at least a year to prepare for that. He said, fine, we'll give you no deadline. Spend the next year reading everything Lewis ever wrote. So I did, and that got me deeply involved in and sympathetic to the mind of, of C.S. Lewis. So I wrote a little book on C.S. Lewis, and Lewis has been in the back of my mind ever since. I'm constantly quoting him, whether I know it or not, in almost every book that I write. So that was providential. What what year was that? Do you remember? Let's see. I would say that's around 1965. Okay. Wow. Um, and so that would have been a um, that was a a popular book at the time. That it. it it, um... Fairly popular. My first full-length book, called Love is Stronger Than Death, came out of a class that I was teaching at Boston College called uh, uh, Death and Dying. Uh, and a student that was in that class went to work for a publisher uh, in Boston that published mainly, oh, strange things, uh, not really Catholic things, but a variety of things. Uh, and I met with the editor there, and he said, oh, we'll publish anything. Uh, we have no constraints. They were sponsored by um, the Unitarian Church. But he said, we have no theological commitments. So uh, I gave him the book, and he liked it very much. And he said, I just have to get it approved from uh, the president of the company. But uh, all 200 books that I've ever edited for him have been approved, so that's, that's a given. Well, it was not approved. Uh, and he put me in touch with another editor of another um, publisher. Well, I met him on the street some years later, and he had left uh, that press, and he said, well, now I can tell you why it was not approved. Uh, we were Unitarians, and we had no idea what we believed, but we only were committed to one thing. We knew we weren't Christians. Your book were too, was too Christian. I said, thank you. I accept that as a compliment rather than an insult. As a no from the uh, publisher, but as a yes from God. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Did it? Did it eventually make it? Uh, um, yeah. Through what? What's that book entitled again? It's called "Love Is Stronger Than Death." It's about the five faces of death: how death appears to us first as an enemy, and then as a stranger, and then as a friend, and then as a mother, and then even as a lover. Wow. Okay. I have to make sure I read that. I haven't read that one. Um, and the next one I wrote was about our longing for life after death called Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. Uh, 
I write the books which I wish somebody else would write, but they never do, so I have to. C.S. Lewis's signature theme is this longing, the German word for it is Sehnsucht, for something we can't define, something better than we have on Earth. Uh, And he never wrote a whole book about it. Uh, Actually, maybe he did, but a lot of his uh, unpublished manuscripts perished in a bonfire uh, shortly after his death. So uh, I wrote the book, and uh, uh, it's kind of a precious book because it's an exploration of of the depths of the human heart. And then uh, a third book was also about life after death called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven But Never Dreamed of Asking, which had all sorts of of theoretical questions in it, like time and space and and bodies and human relationships and sexuality uh, in, in the next life. Answering all those questions as kids growing up, what, what is heaven like and <laughs> um, getting to the bottom of those. Um, that would have been a popular book, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it still sells fairly well. Of course, uh, nobody knows beans about heaven. I mean, Bible's definition of it is very clear. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love it. So all we can do is guess. What could you tell us that we do do know about heaven? What do we know? Uh, what's one thing you could share? That is that is that is perfect. That is the three things we want on earth the most: uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, yeah. Because it's the presence of God who is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. So it's it's supreme enlightenment and it's supreme sanctity and it's supreme joy. We long to get there one day. We hope we all get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, uh, all these books, by the way. Um, um, I know on your website you got are they. Um, Ignatius Press have many of them. Then are they the? Uh, they would be one of a few publishers. I mean, you would have this across many publishers, I imagine. Um, mm-hmm. Would that be right? How many publishers have you sort of worked with to get all these out there um, over the years? I think the three main ones are Ignatius Press, St. Augustine's Press, and InterVarsity Press, which is largely a Protestant uh, house. Oh, wow. Uh, I got into Ignatius Press uh, after I had written some books for InterVarsity Press. One of them, Three Philosophies of Life, is about uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, three very philosophical and thoughtful books in the Old Testament, part of the wisdom literature. Uh, and when I sent the manuscript to uh, InterVarsity Press, they liked it, and they said, we have to uh, censor one word uh, when you're talking about Job and the sufferings of Job. Uh, like the translators of the King James Bible, you use the literal word uh, in King James English, it's dung, and in modern English, it's shit. And he said, we, we Protestants will we'll sometimes tolerate blasphemy, but we'll not t- tolerate that word. And I said, the word is essential. And he said, yeah, that's what I thought you'd say. Well, then then you probably need a Catholic press. Why don't you try Ignatius? So I did. And I've been with Ignatius ever since. Um, yeah, your earlier, what was the earliest publications? They, they've been around since 78. Um, uh, would, were you right there in the early years of Ignatius with your your publications? Yes, yes. Um, There's a kind of a a rising curve. Uh, The first little book on Lewis was followed by 
quite a few years without any books because I had four kids and that's four full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, that's right. <laughs> and right now I'm writing two or three books every year. Uh, at the beginning, it was maybe a book every two years or every year. Wow. I don't know how you've done it. Um, it's been amazing. And you've managed to... I don't to either. Steal. I don't either. Uh, so they're, they're very different. Uh, one of the books, Between Heaven and Hell, which is an imaginary dialogue among three great people who died almost at the same instant, halfway through the afternoon of November uh, 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley. Uh, I wrote that in three days. Wow. Uh, I wow. sent it to a uh, student of C.S. Lewis who had written some very good books about C.S. Lewis, Christopher Derrick, uh, and he wrote back, I am insanely jealous. This was the book that I was in process of writing, but you got there first. And that's been selling pretty well. That's sold over 100,000 copies. Uh, wow. okay. Probably the book that sold least well is the book that I spent the most time on. It took me 20 years to finish a novel. Uh, because philosophers shouldn't be allowed to write novels. They're much too wordy and philosophical and abstract and, and rational. So I had to uh, ruthlessly cut out all the philosophical sections. But it's a novel of spiritual warfare called uh, An Ocean Full of Angels. And I think it's pretty good, but apparently nobody else does. <laughs> so I accept the world's judgment on that. So, but I did, so get, I did get a letter from a New Zealand sheep farmer who had read the book, and I was very pleased by that. <laughs> oh well, there you go. So people on the other side of the world have been uh, been getting it. So that's 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 good. I might look into that mm -hmm. one. I've, I'm looking at it now on your website, and I could see the different categories. Um, so that's as you as you said, your least popular, but the most popular one that sold the most out of all the, the publications was the one you just mentioned before. Is that right? Um, um, something actually, I think it's probably the Handbook of Christian Apologetics. Yes, there's um, the pocket version and then and the full length version. Was it both or, yeah. or the full length? No, the full length version. Yeah. Okay. Is that with that would be with uh, Ignatius, I imagine. Yep. yep. Okay. There, I, I tried to follow basically the method of Thomas Aquinas in his Summa, uh, less scholarly and less philosophical and less abstract, but uh, you know objections and replies and definitions and set out everything as, as clearly and as in an orderly fashion as I could. That's really good. Well, we, we are going to make sure with all these titles, especially with Ignatius and Augustine, we have partnerships with both of those. We want to make sure we can get these to our listeners and, uh, and viewers, um, uh, all, the, all, all of these books eventually. The one book we have, um, and, and I'd like to, um, anyone watching this and, you know, We'll, we'll um, when we publish publish this. If you just literally um, put in um, uh, the word Perusia as a code, we're going to make a Perusia podcast um, PK Peter Kreeft. Um, Perusia podcast Peter Kreeft would be the code, and we'll put it on the screen when we record this. But it's for the the book Your Questions, God's Answers, and we've got that. We're going to offer um, ten percent off for anyone watching this right now over the next month. But that I'd like to talk a bit about that book, um, your, your Questions, God's Answers. Could, um, when did you write that? And, and tell us a little bit about how that came about. I wrote that very early. 
and all the answers come from the Bible. But I love Socrates uh, because of the dialogue format. So I imagined that uh, the Bible is answers to questions that we naturally ask, but sometimes the answers come first and the questions come second. Uh, obviously, the Bible has been around for much longer than my books. So it's something like, what is, what is the question to which this passage is an answer? Okay. It looks like a very easy uh, layout to follow. And young people, uh, you've sort of designed it so young people can pick this up um, very yeah. easily and, and go through this. If I highly recommend it. Yeah. Your uh, I, I, don't, I don't write books for scholars. I write books for ordinary people. <laughs> and that, that brings me to the next point. Um, what I love about your writing and your style of writing is you're getting really complex concepts and distilling them into an easy-to-understand um, way, very digestible for the common person. That's allowed me to at least get, get a taste of, of it and, um, and, and many, many others. So, uh, yeah, how hard is, it, is that for you to grasp it? I mean, you understand that there's real. It's very complex. easy. It's very easy. That's why I've written so many books. They they, they come <laughs> naturally. Uh, in fact, I think kid. God deliberately gave me a blessed handicap. I have ADD, attention deficit disorder, so wow. I get bored very easily. So when I write, I think of myself as the reader, and I say, "No, this is boring. This won't do. Uh, it's got to be better than that." Uh, I think every one of us has uh, a number of handicaps and a number of uh, uh, talents. Uh, I, I have an astonishing handicap with computers. Uh, I will make mistakes which are so stupid people will not believe them. Uh, but uh, I instinctively understand uh, and intuitively uh, poetry, anything beautiful that I see, I, I remember. I can't remember numbers. I have to translate them into letters. Phone numbers, uh, I remember by uh, by letters, not by number. So I think the math half of my brain is sleeping and the other half is awake. So interesting, isn't it? That whole, um, yeah, how we all are different in many ways. And, and that. Um, but thank God for your, your handicap because it, it, it's, it's benefiting for the world today. I, I um, like to invite people to visit your website. Um, can you, you've got a website, peterkreef.com. Um, does that get uh, updated frequently, and and is that a good place for people to, I guess, get familiar with your work? I think so. I trust the fellow who runs it, Dave Nevins. I hardly ever visit my website. Uh, better things to do, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there and a lot of free downloads. Yeah, we've got um, so not only are the list of books, but there's also featured audios um, and then writings as well. So. Um, quite a bit of um, articles that are here um, relating to God, arguments for God's existence, um, autobiography um, writings, heaven and hell, very, very um, interesting topics. And just want to, I guess, as we sort of um, wind up here and, and get, I'd like to touch on maybe to whet people's appetite a bit. What, let's, let's start with things relating to God. You, you, you've talked about love. What is love? Um, let, let's talk maybe what is love? I mean, you've got the question there. You write about it often. Um, what's a, a quick way we can respond to people uh, um, today? It's so vast, but some people distill it. We think of Valentine's Day. We think of roses and chocolates. We think of love in, in a particular way. Or, but um, how would you say it in, in, a, in a sentence? 
I'm, I'm a shameless borrower from minds greater than myself. So, uh, and I also like short and clear definitions. So my favorite is from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he says, love is very simple. Love is the will to the good of the other. Beautiful. The will to the good of the other. First, first of all, it's other-directed. Uh, secondly, it's, its aim is goodness. Uh, and thirdly, it's a matter of will. It's a matter of choice. Uh, we, we can't control our feelings. If, if you think that God's command to love each other is a command to have a certain kind of feeling, then God's a very bad psychologist. I, I can't reasonably say to you, I command you to change your feelings to me right now. Don't feel hostility anymore. Feel compassion. You can't do that. Feelings just arise like the weather. Uh, what you can control is your choices. Yes. And your feelings many, can many be educated can by your will and your choices. That's so true. But what, many would mistake love for feeling. Would, would, would use, I feel mm -hmm. this or feel that, that way. Um, what what is going on there? But Do feelings they... come and go. Feelings yeah. come and go. So if love is a feeling, then God comes and goes. Then his attitude yeah. towards you today is going to change tomorrow, which that's not God. God loves you infinitely and totally all the time. And to think that to say love is not a feeling, uh, to think that that means love is less passionate than feelings is like thinking that the ocean can't really be wet because it can't get wet, or fire can't really be hot because it can't get hot. <laughs> yeah, very good. You plant as I'm saying, yeah, so that love is always the will of the good of the other. It's always other-centered, and it is in the will, the act, the decision. Um, that's very yeah. good. Thank you. I think just trying to plant that's, that's it. That's why wanna... we're commanded to love. That's why we're responsible for it. Amen. A world, we need a world of love, real love, and, 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 and um, we would be in a much better place uh, if we all did that, absolutely. Um, well, a world so, of love so, would be a good definition for heaven. Very You've actually, I had two more areas. I wanted to go into prayer and heaven. So let, let's do heaven first. Uh, I was going to finish on heaven, but maybe heaven now. Um, uh, you've touched heaven. We have a natural longing for heaven. Um, is is everyone willed to go to heaven? And, and then if so, so are we all given the, the mm -hmm. same opportunities to get there? Um, and, and why is it that not, is everyone going to heaven and if not why i mean what are the what's going on we, we've heard people in many many areas um uh you know talk about no no existence of hell some people deny the idea of hell why would a loving god have hell um but then mm -hmm. we've got this idea of hang on there is heaven is everyone destined for heaven um and how do we how do we get there big questions <laughs> The answer is love. Uh, love is a choice. Uh, I don't think everybody wants to go to heaven. In fact, I think that in a deep sense, everybody gets what they want. Uh, okay. If what you want, if what you want is what God is, uh, you want truth uh, and you want goodness and you want beauty. Uh, there are some people who are threatened by truth. They would prefer to live in darkness. And there are people who are threatened by true goodness because that requires discipline and self-sacrifice. And there are even people, especially in the arts, who are, are, are afraid of beauty. They think it's simplistic or uh, sentimental. 
So if you don't want it, you don't get it. I, I don't think God sends anybody to hell. I think we send ourselves to hell. A Southern Baptist so, preacher puts it this way, God votes for you and the devil votes against you and you cast the deciding vote. Very good. Yeah, okay. So those in, in hell then are not wanting to be in heaven. They're, they're, they've chosen to be there. Yeah, some of the saints say that heaven and hell in a sense are the same thing. They're the truth and goodness of God and the blessed experience that as joy and the damned experience that as terror. Okay. Yeah, very good. You talk about this. Um, there's a whole section. Um, you've got heaven and hell and, and, and different writings, and I invite people to, to, to read some of the articles free on your website. You've got great articles there. Um, um, evil, God's answer to suffering, angels, weight of glory, heaven's difference, sex in heaven, question mark. Um, so so interesting. Um Another area you do touch on, and, and, and quite important, and maybe now is relevant in the last couple of minutes here, prayer. Um, what is prayer, and then how can we um, improve or, I guess, uh, take our prayer uh, to the next level? Very simple answer to both questions. Prayer is simply communication with God, speaking and listening with your head and your heart, uh, and with words and without words. Uh, so... A religion can't exist without prayer. That would be like a marriage where the, the spouses never talk to each other. Uh, and how do you do it? Well, the answer to that question is that's not an important question. The important question is, do you do it? Uh, all the saints say methods uh, might be helpful, but they're of, at best, secondary importance. The fact that you want to do it, the fact that you try to do it, that's the important thing. Uh, we're, we're children to God. And when we were little children, little babies, our fathers didn't expect perfection. Uh, when we took our first step and, and collapsed uh, and we thought we failed, the father said, wonderful, he's taken his first step. It's, it's the will that matters. It's the effort. Amen to that. Well, thank you very much. Um, and as we close, and, 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 and I want to thank you for your time, praying that you stay safe in this whole environment. Is your university... Now, life at the moment, uh, classes are uh, off, face-to-face mm -hmm. -face classes are, have stopped. Uh, are you in lockdown at the moment? In your yes, state? yes. Actually, the university is closed down and all classes are online. And after valiant efforts, I finally learned how to conduct classes online today. Fantastic. I didn't think I could learn that. <laughs> <laughs> so there is hope, you see. <laughs> Very good. There is um, hope, yes. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> pigs do fly. <laughs> oh, who knows it's very scary it's a fast-moving world but at the moment what a reminder this whole pandemic um with the COVID-19 uh great reminder of um how, how precious things are and, and um and how we can't take things for granted mm -hmm. yes so, exactly you. and we'll emerge from it uh, much wiser than we were before please god absolutely absolutely i, I want to thank you so much for your time uh it's an honor privilege um I've looked up to you for many years and, and I really want to um, uh, dive into more of the books um, now. You've inspired me to really dive in deep and explore everything on your website. I encourage all the listeners and viewers to go to petercreef.com, petercreef.com. And if you go to the Perusia Media website, you will see um, there is a type, type in Peter Kreef. There's some CDs we have that's done through the, the Lighthouse Augustine Institute CDs, the Ignatius Press books, um, 
There's some great titles there. I encourage you to do it um, and, and, and look on for the specials as well. Those listening, um, just put in the code uh, Parisia Podcast and then um, PK for Peter Kreeft and then you'll, you'll get 20, 10% off. Um, but I might make it 20 now because I've said that. So it's 20% off and I'll talk to Mark in the office. And we'll make it. <laughs> uh, th- thank you again. Uh, you're in my prayers and, and please think of us and um, we hope to be in touch again very soon. Thank you. Same to you. And God bless your work. Thank you so much. God bless you. Bye-bye for now. That was Dr. Peter Kreeft. I encourage you to um, visit his website. Thank you again for this special podcast. Uh, I'm Shabal Raish. Please pray for us. And we're praying for a very difficult time. Make Pray with your family. Hug your, hug your loved ones. Stay safe and, um, and keep up the prayers. This is a time to really bunker down. Um, me personally, my prayer life has never been better at a time like this because now we're praying as a family and I encourage you all to do the same. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jess, and, and all of you. Have a blessed week and we'll be back again with more guests coming up. God bless you.